Music is all around us, all the time. We take it for granted that we can hear a great song anytime we want, whether we stream it through Spotify or Pandora, listen to it on an iPod, or even just turning it on the car radio. Music is an integral part of the human experience today, just like it was 400 years ago in the time of the Pilgrims and the early settlements of New England. I'm Hilary Goodnow, and this is Voices from the Past, the Plymouth Plantation Podcast. John Dante Prevedini is my guest today. He's a contemporary classical composer who draws a lot of his inspiration from early modern European art music. He's also a major league music buff. He surprised me by explaining how so much of what we love about music has its roots in the 17th century, stretching from Italian opera to the Beatles to even Justin Bieber. Don't believe me? So John, thank you for being on the podcast with us today and talking about the role of 17th century music theory, not only in our contemporary musical landscape, but also in your own work as a classical composer. Um, The title of our podcast episode today is Music of the Spheres. And this is a title that comes directly from a presentation that you gave at the museum. Can you talk a little bit about that phrase, music of the spheres? Where does it come from? Music of the spheres, for me, refers to the aspect of music innovation at this time, not only being about trying to capture something universal, a universal uh, property of the natural world, but also music of social spheres. We often think about the scientific revolution and the beginning of Western rationalism in this time period. People such as Descartes and Newton and Galileo give us a scientific preface to understanding the ways in which the universe works. And the music of the spheres was a kind of metaphor that was common. And I've noticed that we can understand this metaphor to describe the music itself of this time period for those reasons. Because the through the innovations of things like rhythm, harmony, instrumentation, and the social role of music, we can start seeing music tying into something universal and timeless that we still need today as human beings. And so what this title says to me is that musical innovations of this time have tapped into something that we still refer to, something universal and largely unchanging. Like the patterns of planetary motion. Yeah, but instead it refers to human nature and how music fits into the biology of human listening, of human communication, and the societal role that music plays, how music affects our cultures and affects our communication, our use of language, etc. A lot of the uses of music that we still have today have their roots in the 1600s. Yes. What did the 1600s sound like? From a musical standpoint? Sure. Many sounds, many, many different sounds, depending especially on where you were and when in the century you were. Music changed so greatly in the beginning of the century, for instance, you might, if you were in England, you might still hear a lot of music that had um, older harmonies, sometimes 
awkward sounding by modern standards awkward sounding harmonies where you have two melodies going on at the same time with notes aligned in such a way that they don't always sound pleasing to the modern ears in italy you might hear some of the first opera uh, jacopo perry was a composer who is credited as being one of the early inventors of opera claudio monteverdi is more famous today and he was another early pioneer uh, this was music that for the first time combined elements of spoken drama with singing drama, sung drama. It was actually an attempt to recreate what they believed um, ancient Greek tragedy sounded like because they believed it was totally sung. But in the process they ended up creating a new form which eventually spread throughout Europe and influenced other styles. So what music sounded like in the 1600s it was a very slow, gradual, but very dramatic shift that occurred uh, continentally and then by means of the colonial empires influenced music in the New World as well. So let's talk about some of those evolutions that music went through during the 17th century. A lot changed for music yes. from 1600 to 1700. Yes. What were some of those changes? Uh, one of the big changes that occurred, first of all, was notation. Before this time, notation was still something fairly new in printed media. Uh, printing, as you know, for books had been around since the mid-1400s. Uh, music printing came a little bit later, and in the year 1600 was still fairly rudimentary. Uh, errors accumulated quickly. If you were making a copy of a copy of a copy, uh, Composers didn't always specify things that we take for granted today, like how fast or how slow the music should sound. Uh, tempo is the technical term. Also dynamics, which means how loud or how soft the music should be played or sung. These were not always indicated, uh, nor were instrument parts, because instruments were not always available. Uh, you had to make do very often with what was at hand, and so it wouldn't really be useful to indicate that this melody should be played only by a violin or only by a recorder or a trumpet because you simply may have had to improvise and adapt with what you had. Later on in the century, however, you start getting specific roles for certain instruments. Uh, beyond notation, rhythm starts becoming more regular. Rhythm meaning how long or how short the note pattern lasts. Let's play you an example of um, a very famous hymn tune, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, in German, Ein Feste Burg ist unser Gott. And in the original version, which is, a, which is credited to Martin Luther himself, about 1529 or thereabouts, the first part of the tune would have sounded like this. However, by the time Johann Sebastian Bach harmonized the tune around 1730 or so, it had its modern form of the melody. Harmony changed greatly as well, and that was the chords that were used to accompany a melody. In the early part of the 17th century, Harmony was what we would call modal, 
and modal means that the harmony tends to follow the melody wherever it moves and sort of cushions the melody as it lands on different notes. Uh, later on in this century we start seeing what's called tonal harmony and tonal harmony tends to emphasize what's called the tonic and that's the most important note of the scale. Regardless of what the melody is doing, the harmony always reminds us of where home is. And so let's give an example of what this sounds like. I'm going to play a melody written by Thomas Morley in about 1595. This is an English song called Now is the Month of Maying. And the tonic is the note G. Now if I play a G major scale, it sounds like this. Now keep that G in mind because that's the tonic. Now the melody itself, I'm going to play an excerpt, sounds like this. Now if we were going to harmonize that with tonal harmony with modern chords, it might sound something like this. But what Morley himself does in 1595 sounds like this. And that's modal harmony. So the chords actually follow where the melody goes rather than where the tonic is placed. What, why did that change occur? What was, for lack of a better word, what was wrong with modal harmony? Why did composers feel that that was no longer sufficient to their needs? Why did they feel the need to define that tonic and, and center the song around the tonic rather than the chords moving with the melody? That's a very... That's actually a very interesting question that's debated somewhat in music history circles. One reason that, that I believe this occurred, and I've done some original research to this end, is that as composers moved through the century, they discovered that the arc, the narrative arc of the composition would be more pronounced if there were a greater sense of departure and return from the home key. And the home key is most firmly established in tonal harmony. Interestingly enough, there are many composers in the 1600s that we call tonal practitioners today, but tonal theory itself didn't exist yet. It was invented in the 18th century to describe what composers had already been doing for about 50 years. And I'll play that excerpt again briefly so you hear the difference. Reestablishing the syntonic. This is tonal. And the ear just wants to go here. But when you have modal harmony, suddenly landed here instead of G, which is the original tonic. So there's a greater sense of 
home key, departure, and return. And when you're talking about the drama of music, there is a greater contrast between the tension and the resolution. And this setting you up with tension so that it can resolve is a hallmark of tonal music. And that is part of the vocabulary, the musical vocabulary that we see with all of the composers who have shaped our current understanding of what music should sound like. And I don't mean this in an academic sense, I mean our the common perception of correct sounds of music. So Bach, Handel, Beethoven, all the way down to uh, Gershwin and the Beatles and all of, all of the music today that actually uses full chords and full harmony is, is rooted in those basic assumptions of departure and return. I'm curious about this idea of departure and return. It's very cyclical, yes. uh, very pattern-oriented. Do you think that this has any link to the rise of enlightenment, to scientific inquiries coming at the end of the 17th century and really exploding in the 18th century? Is there a relationship between those two ideas? I can't say if that's directly the case. My, my understanding is that these were simply techniques that accumulated for the purposes of really effective storytelling through music. I mentioned that opera affected many musical forms beyond the stage. And I think that goes all the way down to instrumental music in the home. The sense that music can convey a story, even a wordless story, uh, makes I think makes music more memorable, more powerful in a lot of cases. What were some of the popular musical instruments of the 17th century and how did their role in music change over the century? Well, just very much like today, you can group the instruments in terms of families. There were keyboard instruments like organs, there was the harpsichord, the clavichord, which was an early keyboard instrument that uh, had a piece of metal hit the string and act as the fret at the same time. The piano was not invented until about 17 or thereabouts. So that came a little bit later. In the brass family, the only brass instrument that really could produce the same range of sounds as today was the trombone, which back then was called a sackbut. Uh, trumpets and hunting horns, the ancestor of the modern French horn, were valveless. And so playing a diatonic passage, uh, diatonic meaning do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, or a chromatic, meaning all these notes in between was impossible except for a very, very skilled player. And the valve trumpet and valve French horn were not invented until the 19th century. So uh, valveless instruments in the brass family were limited to almost fanfare-like passages that used simple simple uh, overtone series. And that's why so many trumpet calls sound like that in classical music. You have woodwinds at this time, um, like flutes, the transverse flute, the straight flute, or recorders, and reed instruments. Uh, the French oboes are similar in many cases to the modern oboes. And you also have some unusual instruments that are, from a modern perspective, 
something of a combination between brass and woodwind. Uh, for example, there's an instrument called a cornetto, and a cornetto is blown with a mouthpiece very much like a trumpet, but it, it is fingered using finger holes like a recorder. And very often, when you play 17th century music, the role of the cornetto was a lot like the modern trumpet, in that it could play the diatonic or the chromatic passages. And it was more versatile than the brass instruments, which had no valves. And therefore less range. And therefore less range. Not, not just range, well, I don't know about the high versus the low, but less um, range of scale types. There were, there were a limitation to the notes that could be played. Uh, in addition, you had string family of instruments, uh, bowed strings, like the, vi the violin was used. Uh, the, the cello and the double bass were not as common early on, they came more later. Instead, what you see is a, a family of instruments called viol, the viol family. And it's, it's bowed. They're bowed like a modern cello and viola and so on, but they're fretted like a guitar and they have six strings. In fact, to this day, a, uh, a Spanish name for a member of the guitar family is a viola, which is related to the Italian word viola. Viola, back then, referred to the viol family. It so, is a guitar in the viol family, technically? In the sense that it has six strings and it is fretted, yes, but it is plucked or strummed rather than bowed. And indeed, guitars were also used. Uh, lutes, you've probably all seen pictures of lutes, uh, our listeners, uh, in old paintings by Rembrandt and, um, and uh, Franz Hals, etc. They have sort of the round back. Very round back. And the, long... the bent fret piece at the yes. top. Yes, yeah, right? a, a long neck. Lutes were used as a harmonic instrument, and guitars, in the modern sense, existed as well. We the... see them in Vermeer's paintings yep. of musicians and, and exactly. small ensembles. So lots of instruments. Were instruments easy to come by? Not as easy as they are today. Uh, the, the quality and the variety of instruments that were available improved a lot during this time period. As instrument builders became more proficient, as trade enabled instruments to be transported. Also remember, building materials differed across Europe and the New World. So a really great uh, Flemish harpsichord that used beautiful wood that grew in that region might not be able to be built as easily in, in southern Italy or in extreme northern England, where they simply had different materials. Uh, similarly, the metal deposits that could be mined in parts of Germany and so forth, they lent themselves to building very proficient pipe organs that couldn't be constructed as easily in Spain or Portugal. And similarly with wind instruments, brass, etc. So building materials limited the types of instruments that became known as the best quality in that region. But with trade came the crossover of new types of instruments that weren't always available at that level of quality in your region. So we know that composers are starting to give more instruction to instrumentalists yes. through different... Um, 
phrases that musicians who listen might know, such as allegro or pianissimo. Exactly. Uh, so would a composer indicate a specific regional instrument in the performance notes? Say we want a French harpsichord or an Austrian instrument to play this line as opposed to allowing the ensemble to use whatever instrument they had? Is that part of how composers will indicate certain expressions in that dramatic storytelling that you've been talking about? Perhaps very vaguely. Uh, I think it, you'd, you'd be very lucky to afford the luxury of being able to specify, I want a, a French harpsichord versus a Flemish or an Italian harpsichord. I think that level of, of uh, freedom probably wouldn't have come until the 18th century when, for example, a Viennese piano might be available for purchase in London. Remember, trade expands gradually through time, and but over the course of the centuries, gives you a much greater variety of goods that are available. I think you're more likely to see, um, as a compensation for specifying an instrument, I think you're more likely to see specification in the style of playing and in the style of singing. Because for the first time, you see, as you said uh, quite correctly, pianissimo, allegro, uh, andante. These are terms of expression, terms of loud and soft, fast and slow, uh, lyric versus, versus forceful and, and rhythmic that we take for granted today. And in the 18th century, a whole movement might be defined by expressing a certain attitude. But what attitude should we express? that may not have been specified in the 17th century, especially early on in the period. You might see it in the preface to a published score, if the composer was especially thoughtful, but you wouldn't necessarily see it written at the top of, of a staff like you would today. John, the rise of the nation state is a major theme in the early modern period. So how did this new idea of nationalism play out in musical styles in, say, France versus Germany or Austria? Well, a lot of the innovations that eventually spread throughout Europe began in Italy. As they spread northward and throughout Germany, Austria, France, and England, they encountered other traditions that were native to those regions. So in Italy, for example, uh, operatic techniques were utilized on the stage and off the stage. Eventually, cantatas were developed in Italy using the techniques of opera to set biblical texts. Uh, instrumental music was highly developed in Italy early in the century. When you go to Germany, composers like uh, Hans Leo Hassler and Heinrich Schütz start taking these Italian dramatic music techniques and combining them with Protestant uh, religious music. And so you might see German Protestant hymns originally composed by Luther being set in an Italian style by someone like Schutz. Uh, in Austria, you might see a crossroads between German and Italian styles and perhaps Eastern European styles. There are several uh, Bohemian and Moravian composers who influenced music of, of the region that's present-day uh, Vienna. And Vienna, as we know, became a hugely important center of music in the following century with people like uh, Beethoven 
and Haydn, Mozart, etc. Uh, in France, opera combined with dance sweet forms to create the beginnings of modern, um, the modern overture and eventually the modern symphony. The orchestra became a huge part of French musical culture. And if we go northward to England, you start seeing operatic techniques at the end of the century being combined within the English mask tradition. English opera never really developed into the same exact format as, say, Italian or French opera or German opera, but perhaps that's appropriate because every society used opera in different ways, and so it evolved to suit the needs of the respective regions. Can we talk about music in England a little bit? Um, sure. I know one of your favorite composers is Henry Purcell, yes. uh, who is an English composer from the so second half of the 17th yeah. century. And can you talk a little bit about what his music sounded like? It's a little bit after the time of our of our pilgrims. It's it really is. the time of their when their children and grandchildren were grown. But this is really the music when we think of Baroque music in England. It's, it's artists like Purcell who are really defining it. He's arguably with by many standards the most famous English composer at least the most famous English composer before the 20th century uh, Purcell is interesting because when we talk about all these innovations that were going on in Germany and France and, and Italy throughout the 1600s England was a latecomer into the game not only because of geography but because they were not yet ripe to receive these innovations until the Restoration era. And, that, and Purcell is a, is a Restoration era composer. So when we look at the beginning of the century, you have William Byrd, uh, Thomas Tallis had, had died in 1585, so he's a little earlier, but we have Byrd, we have uh, John Dowlin, Orlando Gibbons, we have uh, Thomas Morley, and then music sort of disappears in the sense of we don't have any composers with the same renown that come out of England as we do with the Elizabethan and Jacobean composers and then later on with Purcell. We have uh, William and Henry Laws, we have John Jenkins and uh, Matthew Locke, but they don't reach the same level of of influence that Purcell does 60 years after the last few of these um, early 17th century composers had died. And is that the result of the rise of the Puritan movement, the English Civil War, Cromwell's interregnum period, where there was a very yes. um, different idea about what music should be and how it should be used? Arguably so. However, those very interruptions were also responsible for the rise of music as a social tool in New England. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. When Martin Luther was alive and encouraging congregational singing for the first time, he Martin Luther was a composer himself. He very strongly emphasized hymns and psalms that could be sung with one voice in unison and could be sung by the entire congregation because of its simplicity. That was unheard of before Luther. And this tradition came 
forward into the separatist movements in England as well. And so when you look at these early Psalters, they emphasize simple, straightforward, but easily memorable and easily singable melodies that could be tied to a psalm text, a, 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 a psalm that was translated into a metered verse, a poetic verse, and could match the rhythms of the melody. And this was the basis of colonial music in New England in the 17th century. And when you look at the beginnings of American music, the century following the arrival of the Pilgrims, they're more advanced, they're more complex. The music of the Revolutionary War was more innovative than, by far, than the music of the 17th century in, in New England. But it was still based on the ethos of everyone being able to participate. Very simple, straightforward, direct music that was stirring, that was very grassroots in a modern sense, very grassroots, very inclusive. And that ethos has not left American music to this day. And I, I would contend that to this day, that attitude towards music making is one of our greatest cultural exports to the rest of the world. Uh, rock and roll, hip hop, blues, Broadway, jazz, all share that. And I, I think that even though the rhythms and harmonies and melodies themselves can't be directly traced to music making in the 17th century New England world, that ethos at the very least can be traced. And that, I think, is one thing that was created by this English Civil War and interregnum. Even though, in, in the short run, it interrupted the evolution of the Baroque innovations in England. And this form of music that's very, as you say, simple, straightforward, singable, uh, also had a lot to do with the separatists and the Puritans' idea about about the word and the centrality of the word, the word yes the word of god the bible the scripture itself in the religious experience not just the word but the words the, the, the words the word, plural yes. yeah because this idea was that the the beautiful harmonic music that was being played certainly in the catholic church but in in the church of england they yes. saw as being too decorative and too distracting from the actual words being sung and so the idea of stripping all of that superfluous musical notation away got the singer and the congregation back to the word of God focused on on really what they felt had come directly to man from heaven which was the scriptures themselves and we see we have two Psalters at Plymouth Plantation one was uh, translated from the Hebrew directly into English by Henry Ainsworth who was a um, Puritan a very conservative Puritan who had left England during the Marian purges um, under Queen Mary, had gone into the Netherlands, and he worked with the Jewish community, the rabbis in Amsterdam, to translate from Hebrew directly into English the Psalms of King David. And in, in the Psalter, if you come and visit the 17th century English village, you can look at the Psalter, there's music printed, and oftentimes there's a handful of tunes, maybe a dozen or so, that get cycled through all of the psalms. So you learn maybe a dozen tunes that you can apply to different psalms. 
But again, it's the focus is not on how artistic the music is or what kind of expression. It's how can we best sing the word of God in one voice. And that's very different from the church music of Talus or Bird, which was very ornate, very decorative. Which would have also been known to Mayflower passengers. I, I think it's important to remind our listeners that the separatists were by no means the only group represented. Absolutely. And certain people like William Brewster, who is um, part of the religious leadership in Plymouth, had come of age in Queen Elizabeth's court as a secretary to one of her secretaries of state, William Davison. So he was very exposed to the court music of the Elizabethan period. Right. And so the the great masterworks of, of Byrd and Tallis would probably have been known to many Mayflower passengers but they were members of the Church of England, not the separatist movement for which uh, the Plymouth colony is now known. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot also about in that split in the congregation that roughly we estimate about half the town is from this separatist community, uh, which had broken with the Church of England, gone to Holland from about 1608 to 1620, then come to the New World. The other half, of course, as you say, is still part of the Church of England, Where on the Puritan spectrum, we're not 100% sure because we don't have a lot of key indicators about that. But one great example of of the difference in religious practice, the separatists, of course, if you look at a psalm like what we might call the Old Hundred, the separatists using the Ainsworth Psalter would know the words as translated by Henry Ainsworth to be, shout to Jehovah all the earth, uh, show ye Jehovah with gladness. Do you it, want to play it? Sure. If anyone is unfamiliar with the tune, uh, it, it, it's still very widely sung in Protestant churches today. The tune sounds like this. Shout to Jehovah all the earth, serve ye Jehovah with gladness. Uh, before him come with singing mirth, know that Jehovah he God is. So it's a little awkward. Today it would sound awkward, yeah. but it's a metrical psalm, meaning that it is translated into English using a poetic verse which can match with a tune. Now the tunes themselves could come from any place. Right. They, they could be newly composed. In the case of, of Martin Luther, who wrote new tunes for his hymns and his psalms. But the tunes could come from the street music. They could have been a very dirty song. Uh, this tradition carries forward into the uh, 18th and 19th clean, century. Clean, cleaning it up for church. Right. Well, not everybody knows that <laughs> the Star Spangled Banner was originally an English drinking song called To Anacreon in Heaven that was changed to be fit with the uh, words of Francis Scott Key. So that's the, the Ainsworth, as we talk about, has that uh, shout to Jehovah all the earth. So if you came from a separatist singing tradition, if you're part of that congregation, those are the words you knew. But if you came out of a Church of England congregation, you might know the words as all creatures that on earth do dwell. So the same tune, but totally different words. Which is inadvertently creates a new type of, of harmonious experience. If you don't specify whose right. words you're going to sing. Although, although today we still, in, in many Protestant churches, 
see people reciting the uh, Lord's Prayer, some people say, and forgive us our sins. Meanwhile, other people say, forgive us our trespasses. Everyone knows the intent is the same, even though the words come out differently. So before we wrap up, I'm really curious. Do you have, you're very well versed in the composers of this period, um, so the musicology of this period. Do you have a favorite piece of music from oh, the early modern period? I have so many, so many favorite pieces. One, one of my absolute favorites is uh, by a German composer, Heinrich Schütz, who's credited with some of the first German opera. Unfortunately, it's, the music has been lost, but he was a, a German composer who wrote in German and in Latin. He wrote uh, Protestant as well as, as um, Catholic religious music. And one of his, in my opinion, one of his most extraordinary works is his setting of the Magnificat. Some people call it the Uppsala Magnificat because of the uh, origin of the manuscript. And this is a Magnificat Anima Mea, which is a very theatrical setting of the, uh, the Magnificat text. Uh, the, the Lord doth magnify my soul. He evokes very vivid imagery of the Lord striking down the arrogant with the might of his hand, the, the Lord filling up the bellies of the, the hungry, and glorifying the, the name of the speaker for all generations. And what's interesting about Schutz is that his setting of the words is so believable that you can almost learn Latin. You can almost learn the language by listening to Schutz. The, the pictures he paints are so vivid and just so colorful and wonderful. Uh, I, I'm fond of Lully, as I've mentioned. His operas in French are beautiful in their use of orchestration. His melodies are catchy to this day. They're still very, very catchy and imminently memorable. Monteverdi is a huge pioneer in the role of dramatic uses of instrumental ornamentation, and his music is still exciting to listen to. And of course, Purcell. For, our, for people who wish to hear a Baroque genius writing in our own language, uh, Purcell, Purcell's the man. He's the man. His music needs no translation. And I admit that the first time I ever heard Purcell's music, I didn't realize that he was a Baroque composer. I thought he was modern because his music is so innovative, so forceful, and so rugged in many, many ways. I didn't realize that he was a man of the 17th century. So for any of our listeners who are looking for a good introduction to us to 17th century music, you'd recommend Purcell? I recommend Purcell, in, in particular his uh, opera Dido and Aeneas, one of the very first operas in the English language and to this day it's still an exciting piece of music and a great introduction to the English Baroque. Are there any musical trends or styles from this period that you really don't like that you're really <laughs> glad we got rid of? You know what I would have to say no I think every musical tradition of the 17th century that I've heard is has been very valuable, invaluable to our evolution. And I think it's important, especially to remind our listeners, that the only reason that I'm talking about Western art music 
is because it's by far the best documented in writing that we have of the 17th century. Um, Indian classical music, Arabic classical music, uh, Sub-Saharan African music, Turkish classical music, Chinese classical music were all highly developed and all in fully in practice in this time period. We simply just have a much greater body of music that's been written down in the Western tradition because of the role of music notation in the West versus non-Western traditions. So you are a composer, yes. not only a, an expert in early modern music, but you, as you've said, you, can corp you incorporate these 17th century musical themes and ideas into your compositions. You actually composed the theme music for our podcast, yes, Voices from the Past. Can you talk about that process of, of how you created the sound that um, welcomes our listeners to our podcast every month? Well, the very notion of voices from the past is a way, I understand it, a way of describing the relationship between and someone listening from our own time. It's a sort of transcendence of the among the centuries, transcendence beyond the, the abyss of time. And there is a relationship between people in the present and people in the past. So what I wanted to convey was a sound that was English, that was vaguely 17th century, in the manner of, say, a viol consort um, fantasia, say by Bird, or, or maybe, maybe John Jenkins is a little bit later composer, but vaguely in the style of Bird, in a period scale, in this case it's a Dorian scale, which if I played on the piano it would sound like this. But the music evolves slowly out of that into a brighter, more optimistic tone. And to, to convey this music, I used an instrument, electronic instrument patch, which, I, because we don't have a period ensemble of viola da gamba or a tenor viol, the closest we can do is recreate it using software that blends modern um, sound patches with a customizable interface so as to recreate a virtual historical orchestra, not orchestra, a historical ensemble, I and should that, say. And that's one of the great things also about modern technology now in 2016 is that we we have so many new tools to help us realize historic music that oh, yes. were not available to generations before us that you could only really understand historic performance if you had historic instruments. Now with technology, we can virtually recreate historic performances to really understand what that musical experience was like for the pilgrims, their contemporaries in England, their contemporaries in the Netherlands and Austria and France and Italy, and really have a new appreciation for the sound world of the 17th century in ways that generations before us couldn't couldn't enter into in, in quite the same three-dimensional way that we can today, thanks to modern technology. Absolutely, and I think it's it's important for us to reflect on this, that all these composers, when I talk about Talis or I talk about Bird or Monteverdi or, or Lully, these composers their music is reaching a wider audience today and is being performed far more frequently than it was in their own lifetime. More people hear the music of Monteverdi today than 
ever heard his music while he was alive. And we know more, we know more about the music of the 17th century, I think, than we did in the past. We know more about Monteverdi and Lully today than we did 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Um, when Felix Mendelssohn arranged for the performance of Bach's St. Matthew Passion in 1829, Johann Sebastian Bach was virtually unknown, less than a century after his death. It's hard to imagine Bach being unknown. Being unknown, Un except for a very small circle of composers like Mozart and, and Haydn and Beethoven who had studied his works. But a household name in 1829? Oh, who is that? So thankfully today we're able to bring these 17th century composers to the foreground of the musical experience. More people, as you say, hear their music. More people know right. their names. They experience so that 17th century musical world is still very integral to, to our own musical landscape today. Right, and just as in other disciplines of, of history, we are always uncovering new information, new music. We are continuously discovering new pieces that have never been performed in, in modern times. We're discovering new instruments that are preserved, or new paintings that depict how instruments were played, or new documents that describe the sounds of the music, or the theory behind how instruments were tuned, or how instruments were blended together to create an ensemble. And the more we learn about the past, the more the past is coming alive today, even compared to people who lived in that own time. And for that reason, that's why I say, in many ways, the past is the final frontier. We've been looking forward so long that we've forgotten how to look backwards and to see where we've come from and resurrect things that were discarded for the sake of modernity in the past. Well, John, I want to thank you for being our podcast guest on Voices from the Past from Plymouth Plantation. If you want to learn more about John's music, uh, he's on Facebook and you're John Dante Prevedini and last name P-R-E-V-E-D-I-N-I. -E -E yes. Uh, and his website is prevedini.musicri.com. Want to learn more? Download all of our full-length Voices from the Past podcast episodes, as well as podcast sound bites from iTunes or stream it live on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at plymouth.org. The Plymouth Plantation Podcast is produced by the Museum Experience Group and Plymouth Plantation Incorporated. Our theme music was composed by John Prevedini. Thanks for listening.